welcome to the aggressive life. You know, we're about 120 episodes into this thing, and we we've really connected with some really really cool and aggressive people, movie stars, world-renowned scientists, rodeo cowboys, motorcycle gurus, people who eat breakfast for dinner, all kind of crazy people. And today we've reached a new pinnacle. Can you think of anything more aggressive than strapping yourself to a rocket and blasting into outer space? The answer is no. No, you can't. No, there's nothing nothing more aggressive, outlandish, or literally out of the world than that. Even with space travel becoming more commercialized, it remains our last great unexplored frontier. Mike Mullane dared to put himself towards the stars and blast off. Mike is an engineer. He's a retired United States Air Force officer and one of the original NASA space shuttle astronauts. Mike was part of three space shuttle missions, one aboard Discovery, two aboard Atlantis, logging 356 total hours in space. Oh, and before that, he flew 134 combat missions during the Vietnam War, earned multiple commendations, including six air medals and the Distinguished Flying Cross. I could go on and on and on. Every once in a while you read somebody's bio, you just feel like a freaking loser. That's what I feel right now. On top of that, he's a mountain climber. He, uh, you know, he he does crazy, crazy things. Enough of his bio. He's an amazing man. He is aggressive. I am thankful to interview today my first astronaut in my entire life, Mike Mullane. Welcome to the Aggressive Life. Thank you for that uh, lead in. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> I don't know where to go here because there's so many different things I want to talk about. You've been to space three times. Can you take us back like to the first time? Did, were you thinking to yourself, oh, this is going to be crazy. I don't know what this is going to be like. Did you have like utter pit in your stomach? Was it butterflies? What was it like the first time? First time, second time, and third time were all the same. I was terrified. Uh, no, it, uh, when you go out on the shuttle and, and you strap in, I, I tell people there's two fundamental emotions that grip you. Uh, and, and I think I'm speaking for the vast majority of astronauts, one of which is gut fear. You do fear for your life when you were out there on that shuttle. And at the same time that fear is on you, you're boundlessly joyful because for most astronauts, it was a lifetime quest to get aboard that rocket and fly into space. So with that at hand, even though you're, you've got this gut fear for your life, you are simultaneously boundlessly joyful at the, at the thought this life dream is about to happen. So two fundamental emotions there. That's, well, that's really, that's really, that makes sense. Hyper fear and abounding joy. I'm trying to think about where else in life might that happen? Maybe, maybe at, when you get married? Getting married probably, but actually a better, uh, one time I used that, I was using that same description. Uh, you know, one of the members of the audience, uh, this uh, mother came up to me, she says, that's exactly how I felt when I was in labor. Boundless joy and gut fear. So, so if I, I tell people, if you're a mother, you've been closer to the astronaut experience than you might have thought. <laughs> when you talk about the fear, is the fear because you're in this thing that's rumbling, or is the fear you're mentally going, I'm up there and 911 can't get to me up there? Well, actually, the fear factor for the shuttle was extremely high because it had no powered flight escape system. In other words, during the launch of, let's go back, back in the days of Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the astronauts were on top of dangerous rockets, but they were protected to some degree, particularly during powered flight, uh, with a capsule escape system where you see these towers on top of those early rockets, that tower would fire and pull the capsule away and parachute the astronauts to safety if the booster blew up. On the space shuttle, we didn't have any of that. When you got in that cockpit, you're strapped in, and if there's a catastrophic failure during launch, no question, you're going to die. So it's that sense of not having an escape system that really ratcheted up the fear for the shuttle. For example, in the Air Force, uh, you are in some scary situations, you know, combat and other other scary situations, but you're sitting on an ejection seat. 
it may be a misplaced uh, uh, belief, but you have this sense that I have a final out here. If everything is going bad, if a plane's hits on fire from a mechanical malfunction, I just pull these handles and I'm out of here. That's why the shuttle, I felt the greatest fear of my life uh, sitting on a space shuttle because of the lack of an escape system. Nowadays, with the commercialization of space, you've got SpaceX and you have Blue Origin, both of which have escape systems for powered flight. They have the same basic design where the capsule is blasted free if a booster blows up and the passengers or whoever's aboard those will be parachuted to safety. So in that regard, if you look before the shuttle and now what's coming on after the shuttle, everything had in that, that window had powered flight escape systems, but not the space shuttle. That's why that fear factor was so high on that particular vehicle. That seems really ungovernment and un-NASA-like to not be about safety. Was it just something technologically not possible, or they said it's just not, this is just one boy, just going to have to suck it up? Okay, the, the belief system at NASA, now this, the, the vehicle was designed before, I was in the first class of space shuttle astronauts, as you indicated, uh, in 1978. When we got there, the vehicle was already designed, uh, but go back, six, seven years when their basic design was being laid down for the space shuttle, again, before we're there, uh, the question of escape system was certainly on the table. But NASA was confident that coming out of the Apollo program, that they would be able to build a reusable rocket that was basically had a level of safety uh, uh, more like a commercial airliner than by like a experimental rocket. Now, the first Four shuttle missions only had two crew members aboard, and they did fly with two ejection seats in the cockpit for those guys. But the shuttle had no mission with two people. It needed six, seven people in there to do the mission. So um, the whole plan was to have four experimental flights, and if all those went well, then they would pull out those two ejection seats, expand the crew size to four to seven people, and fly what they called operational missions with no crew escape system. That was the thinking, is that the vehicle could prove itself in four flights, that it would be as reliable and, you know, with redundancy and ground testing, it would be more like an airliner. You know, NASA absolutely has the, the lives of the astronauts in mind when they're designing these things. And they were confident their vehicle was going to going to provide provide the safety. I believe that, but they, they also knew that if if one person didn't want to be an astronaut. How many people How many people have all the requirements to be an astronaut but just never got a shot? Well, if they just recently, yesterday, announced a new selection of new astronauts. Applied was 12,000. They had 12,000 people apply to be selected. There were 10 selected. So it's a very, uh, wow. you know, very narrow selection. But of those, of those 12,000 people applied, probably, you know, I would guess, a hundred were highly qualified, maybe 200 were highly qualified uh, to be as astronauts. So uh, it's not, I mean, obviously there are some, some things that NASA is looking for that's going to narrow the, narrow the decision-making down. You can apply, but uh, you know, you might not be competitive with other people who have done more than what the minimum requirements are for the application. But I want to make no mistake about it. NASA designs their rockets with the health and welfare of the crew foremost in, in mind. The, the shuttle was a particular case where uh, when you add escape systems, you add weight. If you add weight, yep. that means you can't carry as much payload into space. So obviously there's a trade-off there. Uh, and NASA thought it had reached the point where they they, were, they could build a rocket that was reliable enough to fly without any danger. By the way, uh, you know, this gets a little complicated, but both the losses on the space shuttle, both losses uh, with the space shuttle Challenger in uh, 1986 and the space shuttle Columbia that burned up over Texas in, in 2003, both of those uh, losses were more, I mean, uh, they had an early warning that, that, this, that this might happen. So it was really more of a failure in how the team responded to early warnings than it was a failure of the vehicle. If you take out those two mm. early warnings, if the team had reacted uh, correctly to those and take the appropriate action and those had not happened, the shuttle would have flown without any fatalities. 
it is stunning that we have this metaphor. Well, it's not rocket science. We have that metaphor because it's incredibly complicated and complex and difficult. And this complicated, complex, and difficult thing of going to space, the number of people we've had there, it's, it's amazing. There hasn't been more life loss than it is. Obviously, it's awful whenever we have a life loss, but it's really, really stunning. One question I have, Mike, is you talked about the mission, one of your missions on this shuttle. I, I don't know if you can talk about this or not, what's classified and what isn't, but in my mind, I understand what a mission would look like when you went to the moon, if it's as simple as we need to pick up a rock and see what it's made of, you know, I understand that. But like, what, what would a mission be if you're in space orbiting inside of the shuttle? What kind of thing, like what would be the, uh, the goal or the thing you're studying? Well, initially the name shuttle, that implies the shuttle was never designed to stay in orbit. It was gonna shuttle crews and equipment to and from the space station. An idea where while a shuttle was being built, the space station, well, in the early days, early days you would have had enough money to do simultaneously. You'd be launching the shuttle to build the space station. But there's you know never enough money for NASA. NASA's a, a poor stepsister when it comes to the national budget. It's trivial compared to some of these other services out there. Example this year, I think it's about $23 billion. And that's just a tiny drop in the bucket compared to DOD or Health and Human Services and some of these others. So NASA never has enough money to do what they want to do. So they had a space shuttle, no space station. So they used the shuttle early on to take up satellites. My missions were all associated with, hmm. with, with satellites. Then they had some experiments on, on there and some pods devoted to, uh, to science that they put in the payload bay instead of satellites and went up there until they had enough money to start building the International Space Station. Then they started getting away from, well, actually after Challenger, they got away from uh, from the uh, launch of the satellites and, and started concentrating more on building the International Space Station. So uh, anyway, that's why uh, you know, it was called a shuttle. And so initially you're asking what, what kind of missions do we fly? It was cargo delivery, putting satellites into space. Then it became later on spacewalk, taking cargo, doing spacewalks, people bolting together the International Space Station. Well, you're all kind of things you're you're saying. I'm going, ooh, I want an answer to that one. Like, how about this one? International Space Station. Are you saying that all the countries play nice together and we all are one big happy family in space and we're all going to share the information and technology with everybody? What, what exactly is the International Space Station? Well, the... Uh International Space Station, the primary partners, well, the primary partners is America. Uh, Russia played a big role in it, too. They they launched some significant pieces of the uh, space station up there. Uh, in fact, the very first piece of the space station was launched by Russia, and we started building all these modules. So the Russians have their part of the space station. America has their part. The Japanese have a module up there. I think the Europeans do, too. Uh, so there's a lot of people, yes, it's international in scope. Now, whether they all get on or not, um, I, I don't have any personal knowledge there. I just know what I read in the papers and stuff. And I guess they have had some situations. I think recently the, uh, Russians and Japanese had some, some personality conflicts. Uh, no, really? I can't imagine that happening. Oh, God. So, no, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's not like Star they're Trek. They're probably picking or, each other's locks. They're probably picking the locks in their section, trying to get inside and, and raid, raid their underwear drawer and all kind of fun stuff like that. As far as sharing the information, theoretically, everything that is being done on the International Space Station is unclassified, certainly on the American and the Western side. Theor you know, or let me put it, if they do have any military type experiments, they're all at an unclassified level. Uh, I, I assume the Russians are the same. It's a science. It's not a military thing, although science obviously can, can help a nation get a leg up on another nation when it comes to military. So, but I, I suspect you would find that even the Russians are mostly science. And, uh, of course, the Western people are, you know, are really into the science part of it. So I'm look at you, looking at you right now on Zoom. You're you're obviously very fit, my word. I mean, you're obviously fit. You're in shape, and as I would expect it to be, because it's incredibly competitive to be an astronaut. Let alone when you are an astronaut, you've got to be very fit to do the tasks you have to do and be in peak physical condition. All that stuff. Be honest now. Does it? 
bother you that a bunch of, you know, out of shape rich people are getting to space right now and didn't have to work for it like you did? Does that, does that bother you? Like, oh, oh, fine. I got nothing better to do. Let's just spend some millions of dollars and just sit on my ass and go up to space. Does that bother you at all? Because it bothers me, obviously. Yeah, obviously. No, I, uh, uh, in the shuttle program, what bothered me was politicians using their position to weasel their way onto the space shuttle at the expense of, you know, an astronaut, instead of an astronaut, you know, a place being, you know, somebody who's been a lifelong quest to be an astronaut is now in line to fly in some politician. We had a couple. We had uh, had two. Uh, you know, that's what really bothered me. I did not like the idea of uh, people using political power just to say, I want that flight, and, you know, just jump in. And But if you look back on it, why were we doing space exploration? We're, we're moving toward this point so that it could get to the point where the common person can go out there and ride uh, into space. Now, we don't have any common people doing it. We have very rich people, but eventually it'll progress as it did in aviation. Early on, aviation uh, travel was for the rich and famous. And as it gets uh, deeper into the technology, more reliable technology, safer technology, and I don't know, that's pretty far off in the future when we get to that point, but it, but that's the whole idea for the early people yeah. taking these risks to develop the technology. So to answer your question, no, it, it really doesn't bother me. In fact, I actually uh, really like the, like the Inspiration4 mission on uh, SpaceX where you know, the, the cancer survivor from uh, St. Jude uh, uh, flew on that. And uh, I, you know, the, even Shatner, when he was flying out there, talk about a little out of shape guy. Well, actually, he's in incredible shape you for being think? 90 years old. He's 90? 90, yes. Oh, wow. He's incredible shape. Certainly mentally he is. Uh, but, uh, I thought, you know, I, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, he, he, there was a whole generation of, of young kids inspired by watching Star Trek and he was an actor. And, uh, but still, you know, you close the loop on that going from acting to be on a sound stage in, in Hollywood, uh, you know, fighting Klingons. And to be aboard old Be Bezos's rocket flying up into space, that's pretty cool. That that is very cool. In your book, you write that your father was furious that the Russians were winning the space race with their launch of of Sputnik. Uh, so he let you go perform your own rocket ex experiments out in the desert. You're a teenager. You're basically creating pipe bombs to launch things into space. Am, am I getting this right? And what kind of father did you have? <laughs> My father was a unique individual. He was a New York Irishman, born and raised in Manhattan. Uh, later on, as you'll read in the book, he was crippled with polio for life when he was 33 years old. Uh, but uh, he, he certainly was a colorful person and uh, fiercely patriotic. When Sputnik was launched, he was outraged, outraged that, that Eisenhower <laughs> was asleep at the switch, that the Russians had a leg up on us. And, and uh, you know, now these things are coming over in America. We didn't know if they had atomic bombs on them or whatever. So, you know, he was he was he was outraged. And so he was all for seeing me get involved in uh in rocket experiments because, uh, you know, he figured, well, okay, maybe, maybe someday Mike will be up there fighting the Russians. <laughs> I think that's what he thought. <laughs> Him and my mom both empowered me to, and I, looking back on it, they should not have. My mom, one time I asked her, I said, why in the world did you and dad let me go out there with these homemade rockets, with homemade rocket fuel? And she thought this, she thought I was being taught safe. To, she thought it was school sanctioned, so therefore it was all safe. I say, Mom, when does any teenage boy ever have a brain in his head? You know, I mean, here I was out there playing around with these things. I could have killed myself. But no, it was, uh, I was never had any criticism for it. Uh, there was no thought of the danger of it. And it was lucky. I was lucky. I did not lose hands or eyes or my life in this, uh, in those experiments. In fact, I've had in my public life talking to audiences, people come up afterward after I, tell my story about my early experiments and as a teenager, uh, uh, come up, uh, guys had come up and with fingers missing in their hand. One guy came up who was blind, said that they were doing the same thing I was doing. They were building homemade rockets and they blew up in their face and caused injuries. So it was definitely dangerous, dangerous stuff. Well, I certainly hate that we had in our country, a lot of people who lost fingers and eyesight and, and you know, we've all known 
folks who've had some awful things happen by accident. So, yes, that's true. But, but I do wonder, like right now, let's imagine our culture and civilization was advanced as much as it is now, but we never figured out how to get to space. And so right now, President Biden said, and I want to put a man on the moon by the year 2030 or something like that. If that vision was put out right now, I wonder how that would have grabbed the attention span of us. And if we're just not too risk averse to have done anything about it, America, at least my picture of it back in 69 and 70 and that those eras, you, you just seatbelts weren't a thing. Helmets weren't a thing. Uh, and literally not a thing. I mean, I remember coming home from my coming home from my par- in my parents' car, Dodge Coronet, uh, sitting in my mother's lap. There wasn't any freaking baby seats. So I was sitting in my mother's lap, and for the rest of that car's history, my teeth marks were on the on the on the uh, dashboard because I just sucked on the dashboard the whole time. And there was there was literally no seatbelts in my dad's Dodge Rambler. Do you remember those days? Oh, absolutely. I drove, you know, my wife, when I got married, our first car uh, was a uh, Mercury Comet, a 1963 Mercury Comet. No seatbelts. We drove across country to, uh, to all over the place in my various military assignments uh, and then took it to England with us when we deployed to England or moved to England. Uh, for four years in the Air Force. And we, you know, our kids, uh, I, I, were just, you know, we just put them basically in the back seat as infants <laughs> driving across country. But it seems to me, though, that America in that era, Americans were more open to doing aggressive things. You know, I mean, it, and all the, all the signs show that right now. I'm not just talking about our increase in, in seatbelts and helmets. I'm talking about we're, we're, we're starting fewer small businesses than we than we ever have right now. Uh, you know, our great innovation in Silicon Valley used to be taking risks and building things in the lab could blow you up. Now a great innovation in Sil- Silicon Valley is try to get a, a killer app that's going to make me a lot of money. You know, there's just, there, there's the, the level of danger that you all lived with way back when or the early space program lived with. I'm I'm not sure that modern Americans could stomach that. It going going to Mars right now after you've been to the moon is not the same fear factor as oh my goodness, I'm going to go up there and walk. I I just feel like we've we're losing things as a as a country and for individuals the aggressive life podcast. I want to learn from you because you've learned to power past your fear and get to new places and I want us to be able to do that too. I agree with you that uh we're adverse uh, we're more certainly more adverse to risk than we've uh, we're back in the in the early days. I'll tell you, you talk about being aggressive. You know, the Apollo program, when Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, he was saying that where we had a total of like, I don't know, like four or five days in space. I think two astronauts had been in space by the time, uh, uh, basically a few missions. And and he said, we're going to the moon. Nobody even knew how to go to the moon. They didn't know what it was. Ta- it's, I'm reading a fascinating book right now about the, the, the moon, uh, the Apollo program, about how we take it for granted that people just unroll these blueprints and said, okay, we have to build this Saturn V rocket. Nobody even had any clue what, what was going to get us to the moon, what kind of propellant would propel us there, all from scratch. And it took huge risks and huge investments by the taxpayer to, to, to uh, solve these problems. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a great time to be alive, frankly. I, I, I feel sorry for the modern generations that don't have that sense of national purpose that the space program gave me when I was a young person. What's the name of that book you're, you're reading, if you don't mind me asking? Angle of Attack. Angle of Attack. It's, it's not about astronaut. Well, it, it's about the, the contractors and the people leading the contractors and the scientists at NASA that all came together. Uh, it was like a, a war footing. You know, people were saying, you know, had to make decisions. We're going this way. And, and people say, well, we don't have any of the stuff that we're going to need to do it that way. Well, we're going to have to invent the stuff. They had to invent they had to invent machines that could make parts that were being invented. You know, they didn't have the machines. You had to come up with a new welding system nobody had ever done just to be able to make a, a piece for the, for the, for the rocket. But it's, it's a fascinating book about, I mean, about risk taking and uh, getting, getting us to the moon. Well, speaking of books, in your book, you talk about your combat missions. You've flown. 
134 combat missions in less than a year during the Vietnam War. What did that do to you? That that sounds to me to be more scary than more scary than the space shuttle, though you say it wasn't. But that's got to be terrifying. What were you, what were those missions like? Well, the thing about the thing about flying in combat. First of all, I went to West Point and I took my commission in the Air Force, so I have a lot of West Point buddies, and a lot of and sadly a, a lot of them were killed. We had thirty of uh, my class were killed in Vietnam, and. Uh, and there's a huge difference between combat on the ground and combat in the air. In the air, if you don't get shot down, you come back and land in relatively safe areas uh, behind enemy lines. You have uh, cold beer and hot showers and a soft bed to sleep in. Whereas these GIs that are out in the in the Marines and Army people are out there in the in the bush. I mean, they live in really dirty and, and dangerously. So it, when people hear I flew Vietnam, they immediately conjure up images of uh, the movies they've seen about Vietnam of people in the in the bush. And like I said, if you get shot down, you're in a world of hurt. Uh, but as long as you can come back and land safely, you're okay. So uh, that's just a prelude to point to make this point is the time in flying combat that you get scared is when you see any aircraft fire that's being directed at you. Then it's, but, but it's, it's, it's very quick. Like all of a sudden you see tracers zoom by the cat, the, by the airplane and, and your heart just pounds out that adrenaline and then it's gone. They missed. You're, you're out of the way. They missed. So you have that incredible fear at that moment, but it's behind you. And, uh, on the shuttle, you know, the anticipatory fear for a shuttle launch was much higher than was the anticipatory fear sitting out on the end, end of the runway getting to blast off into a, into a combat mission. But when you got shot at, <laughs> that was the highest level of fear I've experienced in my life. The times I saw uh, enemy fire uh, missing the aircraft. We've tried to reclaim the word aggressive during this, this podcast. Aggressive doesn't mean being physically domineering. It doesn't mean being uh, stupid in risks you take. It, it just means you're choosing the path of action. You're choosing the path of going forward instead of waiting and hoping things work out. You, you've, I mean, the two examples we've talked about so far, fighter pilots, astronaut, these are both, you know, very honorably aggressive things. I'm wondering, though, what kind of things in your life can the rest of us relate to? We're never going to be Vietnam pilots or astronauts. Like, have you seen any of the skills in those areas relate to other areas in your life? And I talk about this in my book, but uh, people think because I'm an astronaut, I was born exceptional, that I was a gifted child, that I had incredible talents. It was a piece of cake for me to be an astronaut. Uh, I To give you an example, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy and, and and become a fighter pilot. I applied to the Air Force Academy and was rejected because my grades weren't high, high enough. My SAT scores weren't high enough. West Point took me, but only as a third alternate. I barely made it into West Point. So in a graduation West Point, I wasn't getting any awards for academic excellence. So most people just assume because I'm an astronaut now, I was born to it. It was easy. No, I, I had none of the underlying uh, genius and talents that I've seen in truly gifted people. I've been around astronauts and I've been around test pilots who are truly gifted. I mean, they can take the most complex math and, and calculus and technical documents and read them like they're comic books. They're gifted. I wasn't like that. The only reason that I ended up being competitive for an astronaut is because actually there's three things I had going for me. One was the fact that uh, all of my energy was laser focused on space and aviation. I didn't drift around in college wondering what should I major in or any of that. I knew exactly that I wanted an engineering background so I could participate in the space program and hopefully someday participate as an astronaut. Uh, but that, you know, that was it. You know, I, I had this focus and the other thing I had was tenacity, extreme tenacity given to me by the example of my parents. As I said, my dad was crippled for life with polio in 1933 when we were stationed in Hawaii and uh, never walked again. Had My parents had six kids to raise at that point. Uh, and it could have gone down very ugly, but they were heroic and they stayed laser focused on their mission of raising these kids 
in spite of polio, working around the obstacles that polio, immense obstacles that polio put in front of him. I was 10 years old when that was happening, and I was imprinted with this powerful sense of tenacity. And then the other thing that I got, and I got it from nuns, 12 years of Catholic education, where the nuns were hammering into us, you're not there, you can be better, you can be better. Now that was aimed at my spiritual being, but it doesn't, it spills over into your secular being. Yeah, I can be a, a better engineer. I can be a better backseater in fighter jets. I, and later on, I can be a better astronaut. I can be, I can use that tenacity to get through graduate school. I, I achieved some things in my education, graduate school and test pilots, uh, backseater test pilot school, very difficult courses, by the way. I achieved success in those, but only because I had the tenacity and the focus and the will to believe I could be better. And that's what I had going on in my life. I wasn't born uh, to gifted and had this easy easy golden road to follow to be uh, to be an astronaut. So I am absolutely on board with your sense that this aggressive life is something that everybody should should be doing to be a better parent, a better a better spouse, a better friend, a better team member, a better team leader, uh, in all aspects of our personal professional life. To look look for improvement. So you've applied this to your marriage then? You've been aggressive? Your- oh, I, I left, uh, there's no harder task in the world. I've been married 54 years. Uh, and uh, I think my wife and I will be the first to say, you know, there's, there were some very, very rough moments in that marriage. Uh, and, you know, we, we pulled through, uh, I think we had some things going for us there. We didn't, we had, we had parents who had never divorced. So, you know, that, that's a big thing too. When you have an example of parents that suck it through tough times, we were both raised in Catholic families. And so we had that shared, shared value system. So we had some things going for us that I look back on and probably made all the difference in our, in staying together for all these years. Well, you mentioned you've had some diff- difficult moments. Lib and I have had difficult years. So good for you only having moments. We had difficult years. And boy, you bring up a good point that I don't think I've given enough thought to that uh, her parents and my parents are both still together and still alive. And I don't, I don't think I've given enough credit to those folks of setting us an example and a model that, that we, we didn't want to be the first ones to, to break up, you know, um, uh, that there's something about that. that there was a there was a level of leadership that we were given that uh, we've been blessed by. Yeah, no, I absolutely believe that. I think uh, I, again at the time, and when I say moments, it wasn't difficult moments like you, but like everybody, you have diff- difficult years. Yes. Uh, but, but you know, again for us, it was you know we were born to traditional parents, stayed married, we had the same uh, value background from the Catholic uh, education. Uh, well, we, as far as role, roles that would we play in our marriage, you know, hey, wife stayed home and raised the kids, husbands went off and, and worked. You know, that was that 1950s, uh, uh, tech, uh, mindset. So there was never any debate when we were, we were married. Oh, I want to go back to work or I, I want to stay with the kid, whatever. You know, it was all decided ahead of time in our brains by our, by our background. You know, that you just did it. You know, you had kids. Yeah. Uh, that we had we had three kids by the time we were twenty five. Tell me if that is if that is insane. But it's also wonderful. It's g- give you a great amount of freedom later in life. It does. Yeah, there's trade off there. You can have your kids right away and get your life back where you're in middle age, or you can wait later and then you're changing diapers at age fifty. <laughs> so right. I like the way I went. Well, you mentioned your your Catholic faith. I'm curious. You know, when you're up in space. What does that do for your belief in God? Does it increase it? Is it decrease or does it decrease it? Because look what man's done to get up there. Or is it a net neutral? What's what's that done? Well, I certainly rooted in 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 the belief system. You know that there's you know greater power at work in my life. And uh, I tell you though, in orbit, the thing that that I found that that was, you know, acknowledging, you know, thank you, God, thank you, was the was the life dream come true. I had this life dream, and to see it connected in orbit, to look down where in the deserts of New Mexico I would launch in rockets, and then an hour later I'd be passing over over the Russia area where Sputnik was launched, and you know the whole the whole. Uh, uh, 
pathway of, of being an astronaut uh, was seen through this <laughs> observatory in space. And uh, I felt very privileged, very blessed uh, that I had that, that happen. And uh, so, yeah, I was saying my hallelujah, singing my hallelujahs and thanks to God for giving me, giving me that blessing. I, it's funny, though. I, I remember telling my wife before the mission, you know, that it's like if God will just give me this one mission, get me into space this one time, I'll never ask for anything again in my life. <laughs> and as soon as we landed yeah. for the mission, it was like, wow, that was neat. I want to do it again. <laughs> God, give me a second mission. Then it was, give God, one. give me a third mission. You know, so, no, it uh, it certainly uh, it was one of those uh, defining moments in your spiritual being to look out on space. And But to be honest with you, you know, I do, you mentioned me hiking. I do a lot of hiking, a lot of hiking. And man, I find God in the wilderness, frankly. Mm. Uh, I really do. It's just uh, to be, to see the purity of the world, the wilderness. I was listening to a book on tape and because I was listening to it, I can't remember the name of it. It's like when I listen to a book on tape, I read on my Kindle. I can never remember the name of the author because, you know, when you pick up your book, you're, you're always seeing it every time. But it was a book had something to do with the astronauts, and I was sat mesmerized because they had in the book the actual audio that I'd never even knew existed of when Neil Armstrong pulls out his Bible and starts reading from creation and communion right there over the PA when he's radio back to Earth. And I guess it was broadcast on, on all the radio. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I, no, I think you're mixing it up with uh, with the Apollo uh, Eight crew, which is Frank Borman uh, and I can't remember the other guys. But, uh, but anyway, uh, aboard uh, the Apollo Eight, which was the first to orbit the Earth, and they see the Earth. It was around Christmas uh, season. The Earth is rising, and they reading from Genesis. Uh, yes, that's yeah, it. That was Apollo eight. That wasn't Neil Armstrong. He was on Apollo eleven. I thought I, I thought it was Apollo fourteen point nine. I don't know. <laughs> People like me, they're all the same. You go up into space. <laughs> okay, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm going. Like, yeah, I wish somebody really knows their stuff, and I don't. But um, but yeah, that was yeah. That that's the story right there. I was really just I was drawn by that. Like wow, I'd never heard that before. It was pretty pretty cool. You mentioned hiking. You're, you're how old again right now, Mike? Seventy six. 76, and you're still doing hardcore hiking. We're not talking about you're walking around the block in your knee socks. You're doing like Rainier and Kilimanjaro and stuff right now still, right? You'll never hear me brag about being an astronaut, but man, don't get me, I'll definitely brag about uh, hiking. I keep a spreadsheet uh, and uh, over the many, well, actually in, uh, in COVID lockdown, I had nothing to do but go out and hike in the New Mexico and Colorado mountains. I logged 660 miles and about 200 and, I don't know, 250,000 vertical feet of, of climbing uh, with a 20-pound pack. This year, I'm up right now to 585 miles and about 200,000 vertical feet. So, yes, I, I, I and I find that uh, very rewarding because, again, it's one of those things I, I want to say, I can do this. It's not like I run out there and say, oh, I could hardly wait to, <laughs> to be facing this slope. But uh, it's so powerful, the endorphin rush you get when you finally reach the top of your whatever it is, peak that you're climbing. Uh, by the way, and when I talk about climbing, I'm talking about trekking. I'm not talking about ropes and all that. I don't do right. any of that. But I do climb 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado. Uh, and, you know, that's that's tough for me, particularly at my age. It's tough. Uh, it's tough at any age, frankly. Any age. But uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, I don't do. It's trekking, yeah, not uh, not technical technical climbing. But I find the reward of that just you know wonderful to 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 achieve an exact an objective and you know you get that 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 sense of accomplishment that that endorphin rush. Uh, yeah. Okay. I interrupted you. No, it's good. I've got I've gotten into this last year rucking which is basically weighted backpack hiking, for those of you who don't know, in large part because I've been doing hunting uh, out west and training for it, and you've got to be able to carry weight if you take an animal down. You've got to obviously go up elevation and everything. So I've kind of upped my game in that this year. And I'm not, I don't know, though, that I don't know that I would be like you and just for the fun of it 
climb up in a place where there's thin air. I, I, I like climbing because I think I might kill something or I might bring back meat. You know what I mean? So I, I admire you. That's, that, that's really fantastic. And whatever it is, you, you, it's working for you. Now, a selfie I get on top of a peak, that's my, my kill for the day. I want to bring that back to, to show the kids. All right, Mike, we're ready for the lightning round. Here we have in the lightning round, I ask you something, and you like, like real fast, like real fast answer. You get one or two sentences max for your answer. Are you up for the lightning round challenge, Mike Malone? I'm up for it. The thing you're most proud of? My children. Biggest motivation that keeps you going on hard days? I, I don't want to. I don't want to fail myself. That I want to be my parents and achieve success in spite of difficulty. Person you most admire? My father and my well, two people. My father and my mom. What the average listener doesn't understand about traveling in space and will be surprised to hear? It's not all that comfortable, particularly early on. About half the astronauts get sick and vomit for a couple of days to maybe a week or more. Uh, they're, it's wow. treated. It's treated with anti-nausea drugs now, but uh, also you get a severe backache for for probably several weeks because uh, you're you're. Uh, this is hard to answer in a, in a small. No, this is good. Yeah, Let's but anyway, when you get in weightlessness, the fluid in your body is equally distributed. So a lot of the fluid that's trapped by gravity in the lower part of our body is now equally distributed. And what that does is it causes the, the discs in your back to swell with this fluid and push the vertebrae apart and make you taller. I was an inch and a half taller in space than I am now. Problem with that is your lower back muscles don't adjust right away to make room for that longer spine. So you get this kind of deep sway back at, at your lower back and it's extremely painful. Uh, so that's not, not fun. But most people think you just go up there, float around, you know, it's, it's not... I'm sure if you're up there on a space station for many months, you're going to get acclimated, totally acclimated to all of this. But certainly on the short shuttle missions, yeah, it, it, it was uncomfortable. Wow. Jeez. Biggest aggressive mistake you've learned from? In writing, I tried to write a novel that got rejected by every publisher on the planet, maybe in the solar system. But... uh it was a, a leap for me to think I could write a novel. But one thing I learned in doing that is I couldn't write uh, fiction, but I could write nonfiction. And so my the book I wrote, nonfiction, Writing Rockets, has been very, very popular. But it was a it, it was definitely an aggressive fail to try not to try nonfiction. I'm sorry, to try fiction. If you if you fast forward right now into history, what do you think the next big surprise is going to be from our space exploration? Well, if we get, there's a, there's a new Hubble Space Telescope-like, a uh, second-generation Hubble Space Telescope that's being launched here soon, probably in the next uh, two months or so, um, called the James Webb uh, Observatory. It's much bigger than, uh, much more powerful than Hubble. It'll be, back, it'll be able to see to the first stars and galaxies that were formed after the Big Bang. Uh, and they envision that it'll be able to image some of the planets outside of our solar system and possibly be able to tell whether they're oxygen atmosphere uh, and water, and which would be indication there may be other planets out there that, that uh, would, would have life. I think the biggest discovery on the horizon will be to discover life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, that's probably a ways, ways off, but uh, that, that certainly is going to be earth-shattering, so to speak, uh, if we can discover life outside of the, uh, our solar system, our planet, life outside our planet. I hadn't thought of this before, so count me as one of the slow kids or one of the kids who doesn't read science all that much. You mentioned the, the, the Big Bang Theory of how all that is came into being. You know, those of us who are Christians would say, well, if there was a Big Bang, then... God used the great the Big Bang to bring everything into, into creation, uh, as he did. But I, I, that's about all I've thought about the Big Bang. I, I never considered, you're saying that the way that the stars and um, celestial masses are laid out, we can figure out where that Big Bang 
in essence, was, and the next telescope's going to get us right to the edge of where it was? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it should. they're talking about seeing to just, in astronomical terms, seeing the universe as it was just after the Big Bang. I'm not talking about seconds. You're probably talking a uh, 100,000 years, a couple hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, where some stars started to form and stuff. That's what they, you, wow. I, you know, I... I, I I'm not an astrophysicist, and it really just boggles my mind, uh, the whole thought of the universe is that, you know, you have to wonder, well, if you could see what what was there before the Big Bang, right, <laughs> if you see it right. to the, and uh, I tell you what, the, the enormity of the universe, people don't understand, understand that enormity is, uh, there are more stars. You probably, I, I had to Google this. I, I had a hard time believing it myself that there are more stars in the universe than I think it's 10 to the 23rd, 23rd powers, the estimated. Uh, it's, it's 10 billion trillion. That's how you say it. Stars in the universe and estimated. You really don't know, but uh, they said that's more stars than there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. Actually, show you how aggressive I am. I didn't believe that. And I went out to the beach when I was in, in Florida, scooped up some sand, drew a one square, square inch on a piece of paper, leveled a, a little bit of the sand inside that one square inch, took a, took a toothpick, actually a dental pick, and just counted the number of grains of sand in that one square inch. And then just took some wild guesses on how many beaches there are in the world, how big they are, how much area they would cover. Just wild, which I would have thought over the top estimates and converted that to, to square inches, multiplied it by the number of grains of sand. And it wasn't even close to the numbers of the, of the number of stars in the universe. So I really believe it. And next time you're walking on the beach, think about that. There's more stars in the universe. And you think of all those stars, how many planets could be out there and how much life could exist out there. You know, I, I personally believe that there's millions of intelligent life forms out there that are on distant planets. It's just that we can't see them. They can't see us, can't communicate. But I think they're out there. I don't believe they've visited, by the way. I don't believe any extraterrestrial life has visited Earth, but I believe it's out there. You are the most anal astronaut ever. What other <laughs> you want to interview would... my wife? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, Captain Anal over here. My goodness. Well, actually, and you you touched already on just the next thing I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to talk about, which was a lightning round episode, aliens, yes or no. So you're saying you you definitely believe there is, just from the pure odds of the case, that something out there has to live. Yeah, just on the enormity of the universe, I did hear one scientist once say it, and he's right. He says, whatever the answer to that question, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Whatever the answer is, it's terrifying. If the answer is no, and we're it, that's terrifying. If the answer is yes, there is other life out there, intelligent life, or life out there, uh, that is terrifying too, particularly if it's intelligent. Because if, it, if they get to us, it's an advanced intelligence. And if you look at right. uh, at world history, anytime advanced civilizations came across primitive civilizations, you know who, who won that fight. So uh, we may be calling on uh, all these Hollywood heroes to defend us against the alien attack. <laughs> so that's why you believe that there there have been no aliens here because... I, I, would, the reason they, they I don't believe they've visited is because I think they would make a, a unambiguous contact. Uh, I just I'm now I'm thinking only as a as a human being, but just imagine one of our probes orbiting Mars saw evidence of a of an intelligent civilization somewhere, and now the decision is made: we're going to stay away from it, we're going to hide from it. You know, we see there's a ruin or something, uh, you know, but we're we're going to hide from it, and you'd be outraged, you know. So why would a, a intelligent civilization come here, see the Earth teeming with life? And not make a significant contact, or, or or people. I would argue, how come they they only make contact with uh, lonely widow rancher ladies in New Mexico or <laughs> beer drinking fishermen somewhere? You know, why don't they why don't they land and make a significant, unambiguous contact? Uh, that's where I can't get my head around it. And by the way, they've had some very credible sightings with these uh, Navy fighter pilots. Yes, uh, I have a hard time dismissing that, other than to say it seems to me the rise of these. Of these sightings, though, even by very credible sightings, is also 
at the time we have a lot of commercial drones. We didn't have them 20 years ago and all of a sudden we do. So I still think there's something associated with commercial drones uh, in, those, in those sightings. But that's just my opinion. As I tell, by the way, you know, we heard that expression, uh, you should never discuss uh, religion or politics uh, to friends. You know, you can start, you know, you can lose friends right away talking about religion and politics. Yep. Well, let me tell you, add in there aliens. You know, those three, because <laughs> I tell you, people are fiercely possessive of their opinions of the of the alien question. Fiercely possessive. Tell us how to get your stuff. What would you recommend? Just uh, people have been really intrigued by what you said. You've you've built into us a lot. I think a lot of folks want to want to have more of what you have to offer. So so where do we find you? Where do we read your stuff? Just give us a pitch. OK, well, just go to my website, which is my name, MikeMullane.com. Just, you know, just M-I-K-E-M-U-L-L-A-N-E.com. And uh, you'll find a link to my books. Uh, you can also get them on uh, uh, Amazon. Yeah, there are a couple of them out there. So my life story, it's titled Riding Rockets, is not for children. It is not a children's book. It's got some adult circumstances, adult humor, and adult language in it that makes it inappropriate for, for kids. So read, read it as an adult before you recommend it, before you hand it over to your children. Uh, there's other books that I've written that are totally appropriate for children, but not writing rockets. Yeah, that's the recommendation. Just go to my website. Mike, you've you've built into us big. You've stimulated our minds. You've given us some really, really good pushes. Thank you for being so generous with your time and being here in the aggressive life. There you go, folks. You're maybe your first astronaut you've, you've heard of or interacted with to this level of detail and depth. We're all richer for it. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to briantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.